Ladies and gentlemen, welcome very warmly to this, the second in the series of Green Templeton lectures this year. Ten years ago, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence was created as a specialist health authority within the NHS. In 2005, it was joined with the Health Development Agency to become the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, although it is still abbreviated as NICE. The reason for this is the NHS felt they had invested so much in puns and um, ready-made jokes using that abbreviation, it's nice work if you can get it, what's a nice man, etc., that it was felt to be wasteful and not cost-effective to change the abbreviation. The first chair of NICE in, um, 10 years ago, in 1999, was, of course, our speaker tonight, Professor Sir Michael Rawlins. Sir Michael has chaired NICE ever since. As the Pharmaceutical Field magazine put it, he is no stranger to controversy. And, of course, this is not surprising. For NICE stands at the precise intersection of finite resources, scientific innovation, and healthcare. What NICE is required to do is establish an affordable standard of healthcare for the NHS and to take tough decisions towards that purpose. It is an enormous tribute to Sir Michael's work that a few weeks ago, the beginning of March, he was reappointed as chair of NICE after a special exemption to extend his tenure for a further two years following Lord Darcy's review. In his earlier career, Sir Michael was Professor of Clinical Pharmacology at the University of Newcastle from 1973 to 2006, and he's currently an honorary professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Tonight, Sir Michael will be discussing the historical relationship between the pharmaceutical industry and regulatory structures and authorities. It's, a, it's always a great pleasure to speak at Oxford, um, particularly as um, um, uh, getting on for, well, actually just over 50 years ago, I was, uh, Oxford declined to allow me to come and study medicine. Um, obviously, the, in the uh, applicants that year of, were of exceptional quality. The pharmaceutical industry, as we know it today, originated in the late uh, 19th and early 20th centuries. Until that time, physicians prescribed recipes that apothecaries uh, compounded and prepared and sold to patients. Official or semi-official pharmacopoeias describing the recommended constituents of commonly used medicines uh, were, uh, had existed since the 16th century, but there were no pharmaceutical companies to produce them. It was the apothecaries who dominated the scene. Nor were there any legal controls on the preparation or sale of medicines. Apothecaries were free to sell their products uh, with little restraint. There were attempts towards the end of the 19th century 
to limit the ability of pharmacists, the successors to the apothecaries, to supply members of the public with dangerous drugs such as morphine. But the pharmacists were able to fight off these proposals, and it was only in 1917 that a legal category of prescription medicines came into existence. The modern pharmaceutical industry uh, came from uh, three sources. Um, some evolved from chemical companies uh, like Hoffmann La Roche and uh, Novartis in Switzerland, uh, the German company Bayer, and AstraZeneca, an offshoot in part from that famous British company, ICI. Others began life uh, as a specialty food and medicines companies, Glaxo, as a manufacturer of infant feeds in New Zealand, and Henry Wellcome and Charles Pfizer, uh, as pharmacists, started companies making medicines. But it was the patent medicines business that began the first serious engagement between the emerging pharmaceutical industry and government and society. The patent medicines business appeared in the latter half of the 19th century. Uh, here is a typical example, Rexol, blood purifier. It was claimed to be an excellent blood cleanser, especially recommended for clearing the skin and complexion. By 1900, the patent medicines business was flourishing. It was predominantly mail order, with products widely advertised in the newspapers and for whom it brought in a very significant income. We know much of the volume of the sales because the government levied a tax, one and a half pence a bottle, on each transaction. And the Treasury records of the period show that the income generated in 1907-1908 amounted to £334,000. The estimated total sales of that period are therefore over 40 million bottles, packets and, and boxes. And if you have criticisms of the claims of some modern pharmaceutical companies, there are, there's nothing compared to the totally unregulated claims of the manufacturers of patent medicines. Take Beecham's pills, for example. The advertisements included claims that it cured a wide range of disparate conditions, including spasms of the stomach, sick, he sick headaches, restlessness, insomnia, lowness of spirits, I could do that sometime, scurvy and scorbutic infections, maladies of indiscretion, the mind boggles, <laughs> and menstrual derangements. The strap line, worth a guinea a box, was devised by Scotland's worst poet, William McGonagall. McGonagall penned and published the following in praise of Beecham's pills. I, I do apologise, I can't do it in Scottish. We have to get Jeff Aronson to repeat it afterwards. But it went like this. What ho, sickly people of high and low degree, I pray ye all be warned by me, no matter what may be your bodily ills, the safest and quickest cure is Beecham's pills. They are admitted to be worth a guinea a box for bilious and nervous disorders, also smallpox, and dizziness and drowsiness, also cold chills, and for such diseases nothing else can equal Beecham's pills. They have been proved by thousands that have tried them so that the people cannot them condemn. Be advised by me, one and all, is the advice of poet McGonagall. What he ever he got for writing those lines was too much. <laughs> The paint medicines business was also rife in the US, where, like the UK, there were no legal constraints. In part, it was fueled by their own domestic brands, many based on the perceived therapeutic properties of rattlesnake oil. 
Charles Stanley's snake oil liniment was especially popular, and when rubbed into the body, claimed to relieve the pain of muscular bruising, rheumatism, lame backs, sprains, bruises, corns, chillbanes, frostbites, and the bites of most insects. But the UK's patent medicines had also reached the US, and Beecham's pills, as well as many other products from this side of the Atlantic, were widely bought and sold. And as in the UK, it was mainly a mail-order business. Things came to a head in 1909, a hundred years ago, when the British Medical Association published secret remedies and three years later, more secret remedies. Secret remedies was an expose of the patent medicines business. It examined the therapeutic claims, the ingredients and the costs of the raw materials of many of the products on the market. It noted that Beecham's pills, for all its claims, contained only aloes, powdered ginger and a small quantity of powdered soap. The total cost of the ingredients needed to make the 56 pills in a box were estimated to be about half a farthing. Sales of secret remedies was initially slow. With one exception in the Daily News, no newspaper, for fairly obvious reasons, was prepared to accept advertisements for it. Nevertheless, sales from newspapers and bookshops uh, increased, and within six months of publication, 600,000 copies have been sold. The expose in Secret Remedies led to public outrage, and after the publication of more Secret Remedies in 1912, Parliament felt it had to act. So a select committee on patent medicines was established by the House of Commons. The committee sat over three sessions of Parliament, held 33 public meetings, examined 42 witnesses, including Sir Joseph Beecham, whose company manufactured, manufactured Beecham's pills. They gave Sir Joseph a hard time. When asked about the composition of his pills, he claimed that the analyst had failed to detect a secret ingredient whose nature he was not prepared to disclose. It represented a trade secret. The committee were not impressed. But they gave him an especially hard time over the claim that Beecham's pills cured menstrual derangements. This, committee members suggested, was a covert claim for an abortifacient action. Sir Joseph hotly disputed this, but again the committee appeared to be unimpressed. The cross-examination by the select committee didn't appear, however, to do Sir Joseph any lasting harm. He was made a baronet two years later. But in his final report, the committee was scathing in its criticisms of the patent medicines business. It stated, For all practical purposes, British law is powerless to prevent any person from procuring any drug or making any mixture, whether potent or without any therapeutic activity, and selling it under any name for any price he can persuade a credulous public to pay. Beautiful words in those days. The committee made many recommendations including legislation to control the advertising and sales of medicines, the establishment of registration system, a requirement for full disclosure of all the ingredients and enforcement powers. The committee was, in effect, proposing the creation of a drug regulatory authority. Unfortunately, though, the report was published on the 4th of August 1914, the day Britain declared war on Germany. It was forgotten, and for the next 50 years, no real controls were placed on the activities of the manufacturers of medicines. <coughs> this is a statue of Alison Lapper that stood for two years on the fourth empty plinth in Trafalgar Square. She has phocomelia, 
a congenital abnormality caused by the failure of development of the long bones of the arms and legs. As a consequence, her hands are attached to her shoulders and her feet to her pelvis. In Alison Lapper's case, her abnormality is genetic. But as you all know, an epidemic of phocomelia occurred in the late 1950s and 1960s, early 1960s. It was caused by the use of what was then a new hypnotic, thalidomide, taken during pregnancy. Probably over 10,000 babies were born worldwide with this terrible deformity. The failure of successive governments in Britain to enact legislation controlling the pharmaceutical industry was responsible for allowing thalidomide to be marketed. As my good friend Ronald Mann has poignantly written, the thalidomide victims were the last casualties of the First World War. The thalidomide tragedy prompted the introduction of the first real controls in the form of the 1968 Medicines Act on the production and supply of new and established pharmaceutical products in the UK. And along lines not too dissimilar from the ones suggested by the Select Committee 50 years earlier. Since 1996, the regulation of medicines has become largely a European Union function, but the same principles apply now as when, when the Medicines Act was placed on the statute book in 1968. New products can now only be introduced on the market, and established products can only remain on the market, provided they show and continue to show good evidence of quality, efficacy for the indications which the manufacturer seeks to claim, and safety in relation to efficacy, the so-called risk-benefit ratio. Drug regulatory authorities may not, by law, take any account of the cost of the product, nor does the manufacturer necessarily have to demonstrate superior efficacy compared to similar products already on the market. These licensing arrangements have, up to a point, served society well. Of the 583 new active substances licensed in the UK between 1972 and 1994, only 23 have been withdrawn for clinical as opposed to commercial reasons, 22 for safety and one for lack of efficacy. Society is protected from ineffective medicines, and although occasionally drugs are allowed onto the market which are subsequently found to be unsafe, this is unusual. And the modern pharmaceutical industry has over the past 50 years developed products of unquestionable benefit to society. Vaccines to prevent a wide variety of infections, drugs to prevent cardiovascular disease, a range of antimicrobial products, drugs to treat mental illness, cancer, safe and effective anaesthetics, immunosuppressants allowing successful renal, hepatic, heart and lung transplants, and so on. There's no question but that the pharmaceutical industry has benefited billions of people over the last 50 years. There have also, in Britain, been indirect benefits. The UK pharmaceutical industry is a major contributor <coughs> to the British economy. It employs directly <coughs> over 70,000 people and indirectly a further quarter of a million. And it brings in a positive trade balance of over £4 billion a year. But both the pharmaceutical industry and healthcare systems globally are facing a new set of problems. Money. I'm now, for the rest of this lecture, going to focus on the economic problems facing both the pharmaceutical industry, governments, and society in relationship to healthcare. And it isn't pretty. It applies just as much to the US, EU, and Japan as it does to Britain. It's global. The industry faces five main problems. One, by 2012, on average, 
21% of the current sales of the major pharmaceutical companies are at risk of generic erosion, as many blockbusters lose their patent protection. This patent cliff, as it's known in the business, varies from company to company, but appears to be particularly serious for Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson and Sanofi Aventis. Two. Although the industry's spend on research and development has risen very substantially over the last ten years, fewer new drugs are appearing on the market. This is due in part to the fact that, curiously, drug hunting has become apparently much more difficult. I say curiously because you might imagine, with our escalating knowledge of the biology of disease, many more druggable targets would be available for therapeutic exploitation. Three. Regulatory authorities are placing greater and greater demands on pharmaceutical companies before allowing their products to go on the market and to remain on the market. I'll be saying more about this in a moment. Four, healthcare systems across the globe are increasingly under pressure to, um, to cut their rising health budgets and are putting cost-containment measures in place, including pharmaceuticals. Again, I will return to this later on. Five, shareholders in the pharmaceutical industry have over the past 25 years done well from their investments. They're putting pressure on companies to con maintain this. But the problems facing the industry that I've already referred to are making this more difficult. And when I talk of investors, I don't just mean the Warren Buffetts of the investment world. Those of you who have or expect your pensions to be paid by the university superannuation scheme may care to know that you have about £1 billion invested in the pharmaceutical industry. The discovery and development of a new drug is complex and costly. There have, to be, my knowledge, been three relatively recent estimates of the total cost of bringing a new pharmaceutical product to the market. They're shown here, all converted to uh, 2,000 prices. All three reach broadly similar conclusions. Although there is some controversy about the way these results are arrived at, I accept them as an ind indicative of the sums involved. They are massive. And they are rising at a rate of about 10% per annum. Since all these estimates are based on 2,000 prices, the current cost must be well over a billion dollars. And about half this is spent on the clinical development program. Over the past few years, the regulatory requirements for clinical trials have become increasingly stringent, both for those carried out in the private and the public sectors. And, and uh, with the stringency comes added cost. Much of these costs arise from the requirements of what is called good clinical practice, GCP. GCP requirements were developed by an organisation called the International Conference of Harmonisation. GCP has been adopted by the National Drug Regulatory Authorities of the EU, US and Japan. It has also been incorporated into the EU's Clinical Trials Directive. I show here the numbers of different documents required to be submitted before, during and after the completion of a clinical trial. Some of these documents have to run to several hundred pages. GCP and the EU's clinical trial directive were, I have no doubt, written with the best of intentions, the desire to protect patients from unscrupulous investigators, to ensure the collection and timely reporting of adverse event data during trials, to audit individual case report forms, avoiding the consequences of untruthful behaviour by investigators, and so forth. But there have also been several inherent problems. They were published in 1996 and have never been revised. 
they are completely evidence-free. That is to say, there is no evidential base for any of the requirements. By no stretch of the imagination can GCP be regarded as evidence-based. They they were compiled by an anonymous group of authors, and they now apply, thanks to the EU's Clinical Trials Directive, to both commercially funded trials as well as those initiated in academic institutions. And the law of unintended consequences has stepped in. This trial shows the costs of over 90 randomised controlled trials that were completed in 2005-2006 by three pharmaceutical companies who have been generous enough to share this data with me. I cannot claim that the costs are necessarily representative, but they are indicative of the sums involved. Trial costs are clearly skewed, with a median of £5 million per trial, but in one case reaching almost £100 million. There is also, unsurprisingly, a tendency for Phase 3 studies to cost more than Phase 2 studies. And it seems to be getting worse. One manufacturer kindly provided me with data about both the costs of trials completed in 2005-06 as well as those due to be completed over the next three years. To make a fair comparison, these are the trial costs for this particular company for the studies completed in 2005-06. And here are the costs for the trials currently in progress. Cost estimates have almost doubled, and the range extends in one instance to £180 million for a single trial. This is completely unsustainable, unless steps are taken to reduce substantially the cost of clinical trials, two consequences will surely follow. First, the cost of drug development will become so great that the price of new innovative products will be unaffordable to every healthcare system in the world. And secondly, since these burdens apply equally to clinical trials sponsored by publicly funded bodies like universities, these studies too are under very serious threat. An international group of clinical academic scientists has recently proposed relatively simple measures that would reduce trial costs by between 40 and 60% without adversely affecting their quality. For example, electronic data capture and in the length of case management forms. The pharmaceutical industry globally is not blameless in all this. The industry forms part of the International Conference on Harmonisation, but agreed to sign up to GCP in 1996. Presumably, they believed that they could recoup the additional costs by charging higher prices. I'm afraid this is no longer going to be possible. But drug regulatory authorities are guilty of driving up costs of new drugs in other ways. An example of what might be called regulatory excess could be seen in the story of tetrabenazine. I'm using this as an exemplar because it doesn't now involve either a UK company or reflect on any EU regulatory authority. I should add my interest in this has been purely as an interested bystander. Tetrabenazine's pharmacology is similar to reserpine, which was developed around the same time, but confined to the central nervous system. It acts by inhibiting the reuptake of dopamine to presynaptic vesicles, resulting in depletion of dopamine, particularly in the basal ganglia. It was originally developed as an antipsychotic agent, but was found to be inactive. It was, however, found to be effective in some movement disorders, most notably Huntington's chorea, tardive dyskinesia, and hemibilismus. Tetrabenazine was first synthesised in 1958. It went onto the UK market in 1962 and was grandfathered into the Medicines Act in 1972. It has been on the market in Britain as well as in most EU countries since, as a niche product. In the UK, a year's treatment costs between 
£1,500 per year. Tetrabenazine, however, was never marketed in the US. A few years ago, a small company was set up in America to develop tetrabenazine for the US market for the treatment of Huntington's career. The company raised money from venture capitalists to finance the project. The FDA advised that to be able to get a license in the US, the company would be required to undertake chronic toxicity studies in two species, human volunteer studies in particular to assess, assess its effects on ECG, and two additional clinical trials. I don't necessarily criticise the FDA for requiring one additional clinical trial. The ones that had previously been done dated back to the 1960s and 1970s. They were small-scale and not of contemporary quality. They certainly didn't fulfil anything approaching GCP requirements. But one study would have been sufficient. The need for human volunteer studies is dubious. The FDA wanted to be assured that tetrabenazine did not prolong the QTC interval. This despite the fact there was no hint in either the literature or the UK's yellow card database that it caused arrhythmias. And because measuring the QT interval is virtually impossible in patients with Huntington's career because of the movement artefacts, uh, that had to be done in healthy volunteers. The requirement to undertake chronic toxicity studies in two species was patently absurd. Tetrabenazine, over the past 45 years, has been given to thousands of human beings in Europe. What value was there in insisting on seeing what it does to a few hundred rats and a few dozen dogs when given at high doses? Absolutely none. After the company had obtained orphan drug status from the FDA, all this additional data was duly collected. An FDA advisory committee was uh, set up and unanimously agreed for it to be licensed. And after a 12-month interval, it went onto the market in the United States last autumn. At a cost of between 20 and 33,000 pounds per year. This cost, unaffordable to those without health insurance cover, is due to the need to recover the excessive development cost as imposed by the FDA and pay back the venture capitalists for investment, but also, quite frankly, greed on the part of the company. The entire development costs will be, will be recovered within three years at the most, and the company has 10 years' exclusivity on the market because the drug has orphan drug status. The combination of patent, patent cliff, weak pipelines, excessive regulatory requirements, regulatory requirements and investor demands means that the asking price for new drugs is rising sharply. Here, for example, are the median monthly costs at launch of all the new anti-cancer drugs introduced into the United States over the past 25 years and all expressed at 2007 prices. The real price at launch has increased almost sevenfold. This is unsustainable, especially as healthcare systems have their own equally serious financial problems. The problems that society faces in providing people with adequate healthcare are broadly uh, fivefold. One, all developed countries face a demographic time bomb. People are living longer after retirement and making ever greater demands on their healthcare systems. Two, advances in health technologies, not just pharmaceuticals, but increasingly devices and diagnostics, offer opportunities for diagnosis and treatment that were unimaginable, um, unimaginable a decade ago, but they will not be cheap. Three, the public's expectations of healthcare systems have increased very substantially over the last two decades, 
young people are much less tolerant of inadequate care than their parents or grandparents. Four, in every healthcare system, there are inappropriate variations in clinical practice. This comes not from a desire of doctors to provide patients with suboptimal care, but because the pace of medical advance is so great that it's impossible to keep up. It's been estimated that to keep up to date, I should be reading between 18 and 20 peer-reviewed articles every day, including weekends and public holidays. It's impossible, and even if I tried, I'd have forgotten most of it by the next morning. And finally, <coughs> all healthcare systems face resource constraints, and this problem is exemplified on my next slide. This shows the money expressed in international US dollars that developed countries spend per capita on healthcare. It ranges from just over $500 per person per year in Turkey to over $6,000 per person per year in the United States. And if you live in the state of Massachusetts, it's $7,000 per person per year. And these data combine both public and private expenditure. This variation is largely explained by differences in wealth. Richer countries, such as Luxembourg and the US, are able to spend much more on healthcare than poorer ones like Turkey and Mexico. We in the UK are somewhere in the middle as befits our economic status. A country's expenditure on healthcare is therefore governed by what it can afford, bearing in mind that countries have other priorities, law and order, education, transport infrastructure, pensions and so on. All countries have finite resources for healthcare. Moreover, it is obvious that what is cost-effective in the United States and Luxembourg can't possibly be cost-effective in, say, Turkey, Mexico and Poland. Healthcare systems have broadly been trying to take four approaches to address this problem. One, service re-engineering, including reconfiguration of services to achieve economies of scale, reorganisation of services and giving greater responsibility for professionals other than doctors for patient care, allowing nurses and pharmacists to prescribe drugs. All this sounds easy, but it isn't. There are powerful, entrenched forces that will try and subvert all these measures. Two, disinvestment. It's often claimed that much of clinical practice lacks an evidential base, is ineffective and should be abandoned. This is a gross oversimplification. There aren't really any ineffective drugs in the BNF. And despite the absence of evidence in areas like physiotherapy and speech therapy, it would take a brave person to abandon these disciplines in the National Health Service. There are for sure measures that could be taken, but they're not going to produce too much in the way of savings. Public health. There are very considerable savings to be made, as was shown a few years ago by Derek Wanless, in engaging society over public health measures like smoking cessation, reducing alcohol intake, unprotected, unprotected sex, overeating, substance misuse and so on. But there are two problems. We've invested too little in research to find out how to do these things most effectively. And when we do know what to do, we often find it too difficult to do the right thing. Making smoking in public places illegal took 40 years to get on the, on, on the statute book in Britain. And finally, value for money. There are too many demands on all our healthcare systems to be able to provide for everyone's wants. We all, in our various ways, have to ration healthcare. The best way to share out finite resources in society is known to political and moral philosophers as the problem of distributive justice. Three broad approaches are recognised in healthcare. Utilitarianism, 
tries to maximise the health of the population as a whole or provide the greatest good for the greatest number. And although superficially attractive, it has problems. It does nothing, for example, to reduce health inequalities between socio-economic groups. Egalitarianism demands that forms of health care that prevent, limit or compensate for normal functioning should have a priority. It seeks to provide care for everyone in need. Despite its attractions, it's unaffordable for any health care system in the world. Libertarianism espouses a free market solution to the allocation of health care resources and considers that decisions are best left to the marketplace. This places the responsibility for obtaining health care on individuals and their families. It leads, as we see in the US, to gross inequities that we in Europe find distasteful. I won't be discussing this approach further. Resolutions to the problems of distributive justice have been discussed by philosophers since the time of Plato, and I'm afraid I don't have much to add. However, two Americans have pioneered the concept of procedural justice. Norman Daniels is one of America's most distinguished bioethicists and Jim Sabin is a psychiatrist. Together they have developed a process which they have called accountability for reasonableness, or A for R, is widely known, in an attempt to allocate healthcare resources in the face of funding restraints. A for R has four components. By publicity, Daniels and Sabin indicate that decision-makers should make clear publicly the fact they are making decisions and the processes they will use. And, that, and after they have made their decision, they should explain the conclusions they have reached and why. By relevance, they promote the notion that the grounds for decisions are ones that fair-minded people agree. Revision and appeals means that there are opportunities for challenging decisions, and regulation means uh, ensuring there are mechanisms in place for all these other three conditions to be fulfilled. The principles in A4R underpin NICE's approach to decision-making, whether it be technology appraisals, clinical guidelines, or public health guidance. Indeed, NICE's own four cardinal principles, robust processes, inclusiveness, transparency, and independence, closely match the criteria in A4R. This approach to balancing utilitarianism against egalitarianism in the context of Nice's work is ultimately a judgment, or as one of my friends put it, muddling through elegantly. I'm not, though, in any way ashamed that Nice and its advisory bodies exercise judgment. As William Blake put it, God forbid that truth should be confined to mathematical demonstration. Here is a judgment in action for the anti-cancer drugs we've looked at at NICE. They're arranged in order of value to money from left to right, expressed as the incremental cost per quality adjusted life year. We have a threshold range of around 20 to 30 pounds per quality adjusted life year, below which we normally expect our advisory bodies to accept interventions as being cost effective, but above which we expect our advisory bodies to exercise caution. But we do allow our advisory bodies latitude, and if they consider that special circumstances apply and that they consider on grounds of equity that the threshold should be exceeded, then we accept, expect them to exercise that judgment. In the case of these three products, although falling above the threshold range, NICE's appraisal committee regarded them as appropriate uh, value for money in the particular circumstances. For example, the committee said yes to the drug temozolomide in the treatment of advanced gliomas and to sunitinib for advanced renal cancers, both increasing life expectancy for patients at the end of life. On the other hand, they said no to these four products. 
To accept them as value for money would deprive other people with other diseases cost-effective care. They would impose an unreasonable opportunity cost. These are tough decisions to have to make, but someone has to make them if the NHS is to serve the best interests of all those who rely on their services for care. So, to conclude, the industry has unquestionably provided great benefits to society, and even its fiercest critics would not attempt to deny this. I am afraid, though, that some of its new products are unaffordable. The responsibility for this rests with all of us. On the one hand, the industry and its investors, a group that includes most of us in this room tonight, have been too avaricious. On the other hand, the behaviour of governments and their drug regulatory authorities has become too cautious, too risk-averse. We must somehow help the industry as it goes through this period. But industry must also do its part, own part. No more failures to publish the results of clinical trials, even when they're negative, and even if they're not the subject of an application for marketing authorisation. And industry needs to make real efforts to develop products we can afford. To achieve this, we'll all have to make compromises. Government, industry and society. Thank you very much indeed.